Welcome to Ford of the Church, a podcast for the flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus in his mission to reach people with the gospel and then to equip his people to worship and serve. I'm Paul Joyner, the senior pastor, and we are here with John Kelly, my conversational partner for today. Today we're going to discuss the conscience. The conscience seems to be a hot topic in this cultural moment, so we wanted to enter into that conversation around the conscience. And what we're going to do is we're going to split this episode into two episodes, this topic into two episodes. First, this week, what is the conscience? And then secondly, um, in another episode, how does it operate? And as we talk about that, we're going to talk about the freedom of the conscience eventually, and how do we shape the conscience so that it functions for God's glory. John, let me start by defining the conscience in this way. It is our moral sense. That is, like our other senses, it alerts us to a reality outside of ourselves. Our sense of smell, for instance, gives input to the brain that then processes um, that information and tells us about the world outside of ourself. In this sense, our conscience functions as a moral sense that alerts us to conformity to God's standard of righteousness. That's the moral aspect of it. And as a moral sense, it alerts us to guilt and innocence. The Puritans would call the conscience God's spy in the bosom, and I've always appreciated that. Um, language. It, it's helped me understand the way the conscience functions. Calvin called it an awareness of a thousand witnesses. And again, I think that is a, a good description because it reminds us of the conscience function to witness to our guilt and innocence. And I like both of these senses because instead of being a, a wild card that lets us do whatever we want, a trump card that we can just lay down and say, well, my conscience says um, or gives me the freedom to do. Um, if we define it as a moral sense, in this sense, it makes us, its primary function is to make us aware of guilt or innocence before God. And I think that emphasis is extremely important and encapsulates the core of the Bible's teaching on the conscience. But as we've learned with COVID, our senses can malfunction. Many have lost their sense of smell which can cause catastrophic problems because our sense of smell alerts us to danger as well as bringing us pleasure. So our conscience as a sense or a moral sense has also been corrupted by the fall. Um, thus, Paul says in Romans 2.15 that even when those who are not Christians who may not know God's law do what the law commands, they show that the work of the law is in their hearts and their conscience also bears witness, and there brings conflicting, it accuses, or even excuses them. And so the conscience is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Its function is to accuse us when we're wrong and excuse us uh, when we are walking in righteousness. But here's the rub. Because it has been corrupted by sin, it too can give false readings can be like the person who's lost their sense of smell after having been corrupted by COVID. And when the conscience has been corrupted, it can accuse when it should excuse, and it should accuse when it should excuse. It can give us false readings. 
So that's where we're going today. That's our framing uh, for it. And uh, we are here with John Kelly. Yeah, the, I like the the word of faculty, the conscience as a faculty. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's a, a, another helpful way. Um, um, what do you mean by faculty? So it's, well, it's just kind of part of the core operating system of being a, being a person. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say faculty, you mean sort of in the sense of ability? Yeah. Function. So our, our ability to, let's say, to reason, um, it's a, is it a kind of a sibling of that? Yes. In the moral sense. Yeah. Okay. And oftentimes, um, particularly in the Old Testament, you know, the word conscience doesn't come up, but the concepts of um, knowledge of right and wrong are often intermixed with the heart and the mind. Um, those things kind of create a, a trifecta that operate together um, and are hard to separate it, impossible to separate at times. Um, and so... Um, they're always kind of interchanging with each other and functioning to give us a sense of right and wrong. And when we talk about how to shape the conscience, the faculty of the mind um, as a is as, as the fun, as the the ability to reason needs to play a role in shaping the faculty, the moral faculty of the conscience. So, it, is one is reasoning's kind of. Um, a supporting play a supporting role in the conscience or are they sort of on the same level? Um, and I would say this this way, an intertwined role um, that you can't really separate them um, from each other. Um, the, the conscience needs input, but it also gives input. It mm-hmm. needs to be shaped, but it also shapes. But, Cause that's what I'm, I get tripped up on sometimes is the, um, like what is it actually the sort of mechanical part of it um what's the what's the christian understanding of what the conscience is because we can we can talk about it by way of example right and everyone just has an understanding of what it is and it it resonates but but mechanically i guess what is it um I think that's a good question. Um, tease out for me a little bit by what you mean by mechanically. Like. At some point, it kind of goes into the bucket of mystery of the faith, right? Mystery of of being created in God's image. Um, and we don't really, we can't get fundamentally at what it is. Like, is it a, is it a, um, is it a brain process? You know, is it a purely spiritual thing? Is it? One acting in concert with the other? The latter, and that's, I would say, that's the latter understanding of everything that we are, um, that that we're embodied souls, um, and um, you can never, to separate soul from body is actually the dysfunction of death, right? It is the effect mm-hmm. of the curse, um, and the new heavens and the new earth are the reuniting of the body and the flesh and the resurrection, and so we are embodied souls by design. And um, so you can't separate those, but um, but also we don't want to think in terms of material and immaterial. Um, those are those probably aren't. I don't think those are biblical categories, and I think that may be what you're thinking of. It's like where does the conscience reside, and how is it influenced by 
um, the material. Is it a material thing or is it an immaterial thing? And I kind of want to throw that away, those categories mm. away, and say that's that's really not the biblical categories um, as much as it is a function of being the image of God. Um, okay. And there are, to your point, mysterious parts about how all of this work, um, but it's um, to say mystery is not to say it's not real, and the Bible's not clear on aspects of it. Um, it is, um, uh, for instance, let me give you a for instance. I gave you the for instance of Romans 2, uh, 14, that it bears witness. Um, it, um, like um, like a, a witness in a trial, um, it brings evidence. Here's, you know, this person is guilty because they did, you are guilty because you did X, Y, and Z. And Paul's example in Romans 2 is even the people who are not under God's law um, and are completely mm-hmm. unaware of it have the law written on their hearts. Um, and so almost every culture in the world has some sense that murder is wrong. Um, but then we also have the spy in the bosom, the conscience that's witnessing against us that we have violated the law that's written on our hearts. So you have this ep- external reality um, or the subjective reality in the law written on the hearts, but you also have the conscience who is pointing at that and saying, you've broken it, you've broken it, you've broken it, you've broken it. And the writer of Hebrews, in this sense, um, calls um, the conscience an evil thing, um, and that the work of Jesus, um, this is this is uh, Hebrews 9, um, if if the blood of boats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, can purify clean um, our conscience from from dead works or works that lead to death to serve the living God. And so His point is all the accusations that the conscience brings against us. When, um, when then brought um, to the cross, um, are, are pure, are purified. That the blood of Jesus gives us an answer to the accusing conscience. Mm. Um, and therefore, it's not evil that leads to works of death. Um, but Paul's point uh, to Timothy is, here's the aim of my ministry, love um, from um, a good conscience. And he actually uses that word good conscience a number of times, and it seems to be a conscience that's good is one that has an answer to the accusations in the finished work of Jesus. Mm. Um, and so when it accuses, I can then go to the cross and say, that has been dealt with. A good con- Can you say that again? A good conscience is one that has... Has an answer to the accusations, to the witnesses against it. Um, and there, you know, therefore, um, Hebrews 10.2, and this is... This is um, this is one of those instances where in the New Testament the word that's used for conscience um, is more broadly in the category of awareness, mm-hmm. and so it's consciousness or awareness of something, and then gets used in this theological sense to be an awareness of guilt or innocence, um, and so. In Hebrews ten two, that word for conscience is used in this awareness sense. Um, and he says the the constant offering of sacrifices makes us conscious um, of sin. 
Right. Uh, so in the Old Testament, Israel, the constancy of the sacrifices, um, the daily, um, the frequency of it was like to tell the conscience hasn't been done yet. The finished work has not been finished. And so your sins are not yet atoned for, but it also held in that the sense that God will do this eventually. But the constancy of it makes us aware of sins, conscience of it. Um, and that on the flip side, um, that because of the finished work of Jesus, um, having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Um, and that's that appeal. I can go to the cross and say, when my conscience accuses me of guilt within, I can look without at Jesus and say, I don't need to entertain this guilt anymore because it's been once and for all dealt with by Jesus at the cross. And I can leave it at his feet and walk away from it, no longer needing to be aware um, of my guilt before God conscious of it in that sense or consciousness of it in that sense um yeah i mean and and the the word the origins of that word i mean it's closely related to where we get words like science right which is knowledge okay and then uh which makes sense that that just reconciled with me when you said um uh made that connection between knowledge because it kind of feels like a non sequitur in first Corinthians eight, for instance, when um, he's talking about sacrifice to idols. And then he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. And so it kind of feels like a non sequitur that you're, you're going into, into knowledge and then going on to um, considerations of how the conscience ought to be, uh, how the conscience kind of plays plays its role, but those two are linked. Yeah, um, I think that's a, a great point. It's sort of the the I hope to talk about this in the next episode. But the way we shape the conscience is with the ex. It's sort of an argument that needs to take place, and that's I think that's Paul's point when he talks about a weak conscience in First Corinthians eight. Um, what he means is one that has not yet been, has not fully grasped all that Jesus has done for it in a way that frees it up from feeling false guilt mm. and food sacrifice to an idol. His argument is an idol's nothing. A food is not nothing. And you can't change the substance of food by offering it to an idol. You are free in Christ. Um, when your conscience tells you you can't do this, to argue back with it and say, "But I do have this freedom." Um, and if uh, you know, and so that a weak conscience is one that has not been strengthened with the gospel adequately enough to enjoy its freedom. And so there is, you know, kind of back to what we had talked about before. There is a, an important interplay between the mind that knows the information and the conscience that needs to be shaped by that theology. The word um, in the mind then needs to be applied to the conscience so that it is, it is redeemed um, by the word of God and held out to the objective reality um, so that it no longer accuses you when you, it shouldn't accuse you. It should not accuse you of eating food sacrifice to idols. Redeemed um, because it's fallen 
along with the rest of us. Yeah, been corrupted. So it can, as I said earlier, it can give us false readings. It's not a good instrument. It needs to be calibrated to the external word of God. Which is our natural state, right? I mean, our natural state would be our, our conscience um, doing its best to permit us to do whatever we want. Uh, yeah, that's I would. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's that is um, well for some, and I, for some, I think for some, the conscience um, is overly accusatory. For some, if its if its function is to accuse and excuse, for some, it malfunctions in an overly accusatory way. For some, it function malfunctions in an overly excusing way. Okay, and I would say, for instance, for me, I I certainly fall on that second category. My conscience is not sharpened enough that I find it easy to excuse myself to mm. give me the ability to do whatever I want whenever I want. But there are a number of people um, that I I work with in our in our flock who have an overly ex- accusing conscience um, and it leads to hopelessness and despair and every little sin um, just completely undoes them. Um, that is not my tendency. My, my conscience is, well, just why are you worried about that? Mm. You know, it excuses me when it shouldn't be. Um, you say every little sin, could it also be, it is part of that process, and I know we'll, we'll get into informing and shaping the conscience. But um, the the other uh, danger there, I guess, is things that aren't sins. Yes. Uh, well, yes. Let's say That's in the abstract, point. things that aren't sins, uh-huh. but things that um, right. one can feel guilty about. Yeah, things that um, I think you're using this the the word sin in a in a good biblical way there, and meaning what God calls sin. Mm. And so they're they're a conscience, they're overly accusing conscience condemns them for things that God has not called sin, which is part of Paul's point in First Corinthians eight and Romans fourteen and First Corinthians nine, um, is um God's not called this sin. So conform your conscience to God's external word. If he has given you the freedom, then you need to take your overly accusing conscience and begin to work it to enjoy the freedoms that it has in Christ. But for, for most of the people that I'm thinking of, when I say overly accusing conscience, it is it is so sharp that um, their conscience is so sharp that it accuses of them actual sins and perceived sins or something that might come close to an actual sin, but isn't an actual sin. Or um, a lot of times what I see are sins of omission that their conscience Mm. is very much accusing them of, which are actual sins. Um, They may not be transgressions of God's law, but they have not done what God has asked them to do. And their conscience is just beating them down so much that they end up in despair, hopelessness, and and depression, um, and unable to function. And I think um, we'll talk about this next time. But one of the f- things that the freedom of the conscience is meant to do is to enable us to mission, um, to worship, um, and to community. Um, and one who has an overly accusing conscience 
um, is, uh, is really not able to enter into community with other people because they're afraid that other people are accusing them as much as their own conscience is mm. um, and prohibits them from actually being vulnerable and known um, because they live with such an internal sense of guilt all the time. Um, that they just are afraid that someone else is going to see that and confirm what their own conscience is saying. And to them, they need to bring it to the word, to the to really to our justification. Right? The overly excusing conscience needs to be brought to the sanctifying work of Jesus. The overly accusing conscience needs to be brought to the justifying work of Jesus. Both sides of the gospel need to be applied in one way or another. Overly accusing be brought to the justification of Jesus, the justifying work of Jesus. So we can say that sin's been dealt with. God is not accusing you in the way that you are accusing yourself. You stand as righteous in Christ. And so speak those truths to your conscience, Mm. to the overly excusing conscience. The ones that says, you know, just don't worry about, you don't have to worry about those things. You need to say, no, You're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection and been given his spirit who has put you on a path of holiness. So put therefore sin to death in your mortal bodies and sharpen your conscience so that it, um, because a sharpened conscience will um, lead to holiness. Um, An overly accusing conscience will lead us away from holiness because it will, it will freeze us up and keep us from Jesus. Um, And if we abide in him and he in us, and we will bear much fruit, um, then the overly accusing conscience keeps us from Jesus because we think he won't take me. He doesn't want me. There's too much wrong with me. But the overly excusing conscience um, keeps us from Jesus because it has not sufficiently accused us, which then drives us to the cross. We abide in him. If I'm excused from everything that I just don't need him, I'm okay on my own. And so one they both need to be sharpened because they're malformed. They need to be redeemed by the gospel and sharpened by the gospel so that they function better to keep us close to Jesus and then walking in his paths. So we probably all have some level of that conflict and that tension within us. Right. I mean, and, and probably categorically we have some areas where our conscience needs to be, more accusing other areas where it needs to be more excusing. Um, is that a, is that a healthy tension? Um, yeah, I'm not sure it's a tension. I think, um, I would say it this way, the conscience as it is shaped by God's word, um, becomes, um, more pliable, um, Because, you know, Paul talks about false teachers having seared consciences, meaning they've got such a hard external edge to them that God's word can no longer penetrate um, them. And um, that's a danger or a hardened conscience, one that resists God's um, commands. So the conscience that has been shaped by God's word um, accuses, um, but also knows that the answer for those accusations lie in the feet of Jesus and can find immediate relief there. The conscience that overly excuses us becomes sharper 
and convicts us of sin that we did not yet see in the past. We've all, I think every Christian's had this experience. This is the normal Christian life. The older you get, the more you walk with Jesus, the more aware you are of your sinfulness, um, the more you realize how deep it goes, the kind of rebellion that's there. That's a conscience that's being sharpened um, by God and his word so that it is aware of things you weren't aware of before. And as a result, you're going back to the cross a lot more frequently, and the cross becomes bigger and more beautiful, and the grace of Jesus becomes more tremendous than it was earlier in your life. And so because the conscience is being awakened by the Spirit, um, we are more aware, but also nowhere to go with it. So I've um, <clears throat> I've been encouraged in the last number of years to see uh, sort of a resurgence in the in the approach in the like in the apologetics world of the moral argument for God's existence, um, which sort of takes the shape of uh, appealing to the conscience, appealing to that sense of of guilt and sinfulness. And saying, "Yeah, we we all have this, right?" And uh, what's and then sort of just comparing, what's your answer to it? Okay, your answer is, let's say, do whatever you want, have fun because you die. Um, or here's the Christian answer to it, and uh, it kind of it kind of brings everyone to the same playing field. Like you're all using you're all using the same. You all have the same starting point, right? And then we can kind of compare solutions. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I've I've thought a lot about this and and just sort of watching um, social media. Um, And um, I think, you know, sort of the narrative that I often use is that we are all, um, you know, we're all trying to be the author, the hero, and the only audience that matters of our own story which is really an attempt to build righteousness for ourselves. And so, you know, virtue signaling um, is nothing more than an attempt to appease our guilty conscience by building a righteousness for ourselves. Um, and it's it really lowers the bar, right? And so I don't need to be an activist, an actual person, an activist who's actually trying to make a difference in the physical world. I can be an activist by simply reposting or retweeting um, something and 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 then I get to pat myself on the back and say, "Look at what I've done." Um, look and and that is just a form of trying to build a righteousness for the yourself. Quiet the accusation a little bit. The quiet the accusation a little bit because internally the conscience is saying, "Look, look at how guilty you are. Look at how guilty you are. You've not measured up even to your own standards of righteousness. It doesn't even have to be to God's law. This is part of Paul's point." You can't even keep your own standards of righteousness. You don't even measure up to what you expect from yourself. And so the conscience is a constantly accusing. And so I, I put out a curated self. Um, I, I try to build my own righteousness. Um, and all in a sense of got to deal with this internal sense of guilt that my conscience is constantly accusing me of. Um, and so I think you're right. I mean, I, and I do think that is guilt and shame are the two core things that every single person is dealing with in this world. And any apologetics or evangelistic 
argument doesn't need to lead to a basic theism, but it's to but to the mm. gospel of Jesus, Christ Jesus and Him crucified, um, because it really is the core cry of our hearts. What do I do with my shame? What do I do with my guilt? Um, and if we don't deal with those two things, and that again, I think this is, we'll get to this next week, but part of the freedom of the conscience is to give, um, to create a new community. Because if my righteousness is built on my views um, or on my politics, um, then I have to defend that righteousness and accuse others of their fallacies. And I can't live in community with people who are different than me. But if my if I've been able to take my guilt and my shame to the cross of Jesus and find there that my conscience is purified by his finished work, and I can argue back with it and say, I don't need to build my righteousness on my politics or my ideas, then I can I'm more free to live in community with people who might disagree with me and have different views than me. Um, and they might just be slight alterations of what I don't have to draw lines anymore because now I'm free to put Paul's point in Romans 14, put my opinions to demote them uh, to a lesser degree. I don't have to quit holding them. I just need, I can, I'm free to demote them because the thing that has answered the deepest cries of my heart um, are found in the cross of Jesus because guilt and shame have been dealt with once and for all there. And therefore, I can purify my conscience with the finished work of Christ and speak back to it. Those who are being sanctified have already been made perfect. It's Romans ten or for Hebrews ten seventeen. Do, um, shaping the conscience is this? Do you want to you want to get into that uh, next time? Yeah, I I think it would be better to put that in a category of you know what is the freedom of the conscience okay. and how do we shape it? That's where all my questions are. <laughs> <laughs> So can we um, go back to the, to the corruption of the conscience? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we talked about being, being totally depraved, right? One of the, the five points of Calvinism and uh, it's something, something that I've, I've misunderstood at times what exactly that means. Um, does that mean our starting point is we're as bad as we could be? Um, yeah, that's a no. And I think that's Paul's point in Romans 2.14 about the unbeliever, right? that total depravity teaches not that we're as bad as we could be, but that every aspect of us has been corrupted by the sin of Adam. Original sin has corrupted our mind, our heart, our wills. There's nothing that's untouched um, by sin. Um, so, I think, uh, I think, um, I think part of that is that um, you know part of Paul's reasoning in Romans two fourteen and fifteen is that the conscience is still active. It's not been, um, it's not as bad as it could be, but it is not functioning in the way that it should be. Um, 